Good morning. I am not Pat, <laughs> in case you haven't figured that out. I am Angie Mutters. I am the director of ministries here at Living Stones Church, and I am filling in this Sunday for Pat, who is traveling and gets a week of hiking again with a good friend of his. Um, so every once in a while, we let him have a day off here or there, and this is one of them. But, you know, we don't give him too many off. So I get to have the blessing of sharing the message with you. And if you remember, last week, Pat started our series, The Art of Neighboring. And so when he knew he wasn't going to be here this Sunday, he asked me if I'd be willing to fill in because he knew neighboring is kind of my heart and I lead the Isle of Southside ministry so he just felt it would be a good fit to have me come up here and share the message so that's why you got me uh, but before we get into the message I wanted to just give a huge thank you and shout out to all of you who helped or came and attended the Isle of Southside event that we had out in our front yard this last Thursday it was a pretty amazing event. If you were here, you probably enjoyed every minute of it. Um, besides Living Stoners, we had several Monroe families and, and families that walked down from Miami Hills and families that live, you know, just in the general area that came and checked it out. So we met people we had never met before, and that was part of our goal in this. But we had also invited the Riley football team to come and just hang out. And holy cow, did they blow us out of the water with their amazing interactions with the the kids and the adults, like they won the hearts of the South Side. <laughs> Hear me when I say that. So we are super excited. We just see a lot of partnering with them in the future. Coach Kinsey is doing an amazing job with those young men. Um, so we're excited to do more with them. And the St. Joe County Library was here and they had over a dozen people sign up for library books and that was exciting, or library cards. So that was really exciting for them too. So I just wanna say great job, church. This is you know one of the things that we, feel called to do and we're going to continue to do it so if you miss this one when we have the next thing you probably just don't want to miss it just plan on it okay <laughs> so like I said I'm going to continue on in the sermon series the art of neighboring and I mentioned that I leave this I love Southside ministry here and I've been doing that for about five years or so now um, and although I you know feel like I know a lot about being a good neighbor. I'm always constantly learning more. And so that has been kind of a challenge for me of diving into books and blogs and, and videos and, and things to just learn more about the art of being a good neighbor because it truly is an art form. Some of us like to think we're a good neighbor, but by the time we get through the end of this message, maybe you might think, huh, I think I might be able to do a better job at this. So, um, the last couple rounds of community circles that we've done here at the church, or some of you might refer to them as groups, I have led, uh, I think, about 19 total living stoners through two different studies. One of them was a, a video study, and this most recent one that we're finishing up is a book study. And the book we've been reading through is called When Helping Hurts, and the authors are Steve Corbett and Brian Fickert. And this book has been impactful, not just to me, but to a group of people who have studied it. And as you might tell by my personal copy, I've noted a lot of stuff in here. And if you got up close, you would see tons of underlying and, and uh, highlights in there. And because reading this and discussing it with these other living stoners, we feel like we've had been able to have a better understanding of that some of the ways in which we serve our, our neighbors can actually lead to broken relationships instead of strengthened relationships. 
So although reading books like this or doing studies are good, sometimes it's that dagger in the heart that reminds you, oh crud, we aren't doing this right, or we should be looking at this a, a different way. Um, but that's good because we're all flawed and we're not perfect, so it's good to always want to learn more. Um, so with a lot of the things that I've been reading and studying and just spending some time thinking about the I Love South Side and the future, our discussions had led us to understand that there might be some directional shifts in which we lead our I Love South Side ministry. Now, don't hear me wrong, we'll still be serving our neighbors on the South Side. That's what we believe we were called to do. But instead of focusing on serving the basic needs of our neighbors, we're gonna be challenged to get into the messy parts of neighboring. That involves building relationships, listening to others, finding out and using the gifts and assets that our community members have, and use that to create things like programs, events, and resources. And all of that should lead us to a community to be one of development and transformation, instead of being a community that finds times that it needs rescued. So in today's message, it's gonna be rooted out of Micah 6, and particularly I'm gonna focus on Micah 6, 8. And if you know anything about Micah, this might be the only scripture that's really familiar to you. Um, but it has these three phrases in it that are pretty commonly known, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And I'll, like, it's a good, catchy phrase. I mean, I even have a t-shirt that says it, and a mask. I got a mask that says it also. Um, so it's a good, catchy phrase. But instead of just being, oops, I just hit this, a good, catchy phrase, we want it to be more for our I Love Southside neighborhood. And so that's really what we're going to focus on today. Because I believe that when most of us hear those words from Micah 6-8, as Christ followers, we're like, yep, I am for that. I'm on board. You know, you don't have to convince me of this. But if we look historically at the Israelites, they would have probably said, yeah, we're for that too. Like God has given us these laws and these commandments and we are for those three actions in serving others in this way. And in fact, in the Old Testament, God, there are tons of examples where God gave Moses numerous commands and instructions on how to live out Micah 6.8, so it might sound a little bit different. Um, but one example comes from Deuteronomy 15.4, and it says, however, their near inheritance, he will richly bless you. Or in uh, Deuteronomy of the towns of the land the Lord is giving you, do not be hard-hearted and tight-fisted toward them. Great commandments, serving others. But if you know anything about the fate of the Israelites, putting them in trouble again and again, and they were the people that were like, oh God, and good things would happen, and then they just, it was just a cycle of them constantly admitting that they weren't quite following what uh, he was calling them to. So if we jumped ahead to the book of Isaiah, we can actually see how God uses the prophet Isaiah to have this like really stern talk with the Israelites. It's like that come to Jesus moment so that you know somebody gives you that talking to, or maybe like when a parent gave you that lecture that you didn't want to hear, but the truth kind of hurts, and so you had to sit and listen to it anyways. Well, that's what Micah, or I'm sorry, that's what Isaiah 58 is. And so I'm going to read it, but I'm going to read it from the NLT version or the New Living Translation version. Uh, I just like how it kind of flows a little bit. So Isaiah 58 says, Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud. Don't be timid. Tell my people Israel of their sins. It's like right away he's just getting into it. Like, Israel, you've got to listen to this. You're, you're going to hear what I have to say. 
Yet they act so pious. They come to the temples every day and seem delighted to learn about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. And then they might respond with ways like, we have fasted before you, they say, why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it? And God's response is, I'll tell you why. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. What good is fasting when you keep fighting and quarreling? This kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me. You humble yourselves by going through the motions and penance, bowing your heads like reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourselves with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think this will please God? So, you know, when you've had those lectures before, you're having all of those conversations in your head of like, oh crap, I've really screwed up, and you know, you know you've done wrong. But the tone shifts and the direction of the scripture shifts. He says, no, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that blind people. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. Then your salvation will come like the dawn and your wounds will quickly heal. Your godliness will lead you forward and the glory of the Lord will protect you from behind. Then when you call, the Lord will answer. Yes, I am here. He will quickly reply. Remove the heavy yoke of oppression. Stop pointing your finger and spreading vicious rumors. Feed the hungry and help those in trouble. Then your light will shine out from the darkness and the darkness around you will be bright as the moon. So I love reading this and I felt like I had a pretty good grasp on what was happening there, but I had already mentioned th this book to you. The author in this book um, goes through the scripture and he translates it and puts it kind of a modern day spin on it and it helped me appreciate and understand what was actually happening even more in it. So I just wanted to share how the author um, says it. He says, translate this into the modern era, and we might say these folks were faithfully going to church every Sunday, attending midweek prayer meeting, going on their annual church retreats, and singing contemporary praise music. But God was still disgusted with them so far as to call them Sodom and Gomorrah. Why was God so displeased? God was furious over Israel's failure to care for the poor and the oppressed. He wanted his people to lose the chains of injustice, not just go to church on Sundays. He wanted his people to clothe the naked, not just attend those midweek prayer meetings. He wanted his people to spend themselves on behalf of the hungry and not just sing that really great praise music. So the author then adds that personal piety and formal worship are essential to Christian life. So he's not saying that we shouldn't be doing those things. God does call us to do all those things. But that within those things, it must also lead to lives that act justly and love mercy. And that's what we'll see in Micah 6.8. So even going beyond the Old Testament and Scripture and, and God's laws and commands, we eventually get to the life of Jesus, and we know that through his ministry and his life that there was always a heavy emphasis on caring for the poor or the oppressed. So one example we see is in 1 John three sixteen to 18, and it said, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or a sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And I feel like, again, we come back to Micah 6.8, that's what we're being asked to do. It's just not about the words or the things we do within our life and our walk with the Lord, but it's our actions and the truth that we show outside the walls of the church or outside our private time with God. So by hearing God's instructions through the Old Testament and just all that we know through the life and ministry of Jesus, it seems pretty clear that the church is being tasked to follow Jesus' lead. We are to embody Jesus Christ, but doing what he did, and he continues to do through us. We have to do this using both words and deeds, or words and actions. Because we know Jesus Christ, he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is bringing the kingdom of righteousness and justice, of, justice and peace here in our neighborhoods through us. And the church needs to do this where Jesus did it, among the blind, among, among the lame, the sick, the outcast, and the poor. So I think I've already used the word poor several times. And what's interesting is I didn't realize how often the word poor or how often uh, scripture refers to poor. But I did learn that there are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that refer to caring for the poor. And that seems like a lot. Like, it seems like there's a pretty heavy emphasis on that. And we should know that it's not just a common theme that's in Scripture. It's one of the most important things that we're called to do in the life with the kingdom of God. When we read Scripture and it's referring to the poor, um, sometimes we have some ideas of what we think that is. And I just want to share with you that what those who don't live in material poverty use to describe the poor are not always what those who are living in material poverty will use to describe themselves. So if I went around and I asked everybody to share the first thing that came to mind when you hear the word poor, I would imagine we would hear some words like struggling, bad off, impoverished, destitute, lack of access to things, dependent on systems and resources, jobless, homeless, lack of food or money, lack of clean water, lack of medicine, those sorts of things. Now I'm saying that with a bit of an assumption here because the truth is, most of us, the majority of us in this, this room, are not facing any sort of material poverty. We, in this community, in this nation, are far richer than the vast majority of the rest of the world. So these are words that are easy to think of when we have to describe poverty, material poverty. But what I found interesting in reading and several things that I've been um, going through is that those who are living in material poverty will actually use a completely different set of words or phrases to describe what it's like to be in that. They would use terms like shame, inferiority, powerlessness, humiliation, fear, hopelessness, depression, social isolation, and voicelessness. So although we understand that there's a material dimension to poverty, what we're seeing is that there's also a loss of meaning and purpose and hope in the lives of those who experience the material poverty, especially in the United States and North America. So this is where, as a church who wants to move into deeper relationship with our neighbors, we might see some of that directional shifting in our ministry of how we serve others. 
Because when the, po the problems go well beyond that material poverty aspect, the solutions have to go beyond providing for those material, um, those, the material poverty also. So here's a, kind of a different way to think of it if you're like, what are you trying to say, Angie? <laughs> if you were sick and you went to the doctor, the doctor can actually make two pretty big mistakes. The first thing, like you describe what's going on and they say, oh, here's some medicine, um, take this medicine, it'll be fine. But what if they prescribed you the wrong medicine because they didn't actually understand the underlying illness that was going on there? They were just kind of putting a little Band-Aid fix on it. Um, or what if they were just treating the symptoms, like you had just kind of a bad cough and they're like, oh, we're pretty sure you have bronchitis. But actually you don't have bronchitis, you have COVID. I mean, we're in those times, I can say that, right? <laughs> like, you, there, there are mistakes that can be made when we don't truly look at the underlying illness that can happen. So, you know, that's an example in medicine, but the same is true when we want to serve those who are poor or in material poverty. If we only treat those surface level symptoms or if we misdiagnose the underlying problems, we're probably not going to improve their situation and we actually might make their lives worse. And in the end, we're actually hurting ourselves and our potential relationships in the process because we've lost their trust. So what does that look like in terms of how we're serving others? One example is instead of only giving a person money or resources to help get them through a tough situation, which is the example of treating the symptoms instead of the actual underlying disease, an option would be for us to develop a relationship with that person and in the relationship, you get to have a conversation that might sound something like this. We are here to work with you. We're here, we're here for you. We want to help you. And we're going to find your gifts and your abilities. to. That way we can use those and avoid being in the situation again. We want to move you beyond this temporary situation and, and um, have some life change or some life transformation to go with that. So let's work together. Let's be part of your life. And let's get through this. Those conversations can happen when they are established with relationship first. Those conversations don't happen unless you have that foundation of relationship. Now here's something I want to clarify because when we speak of helping the poor or those in poverty, it's really easy for us to go back to last week's message, if you listen to past message last week, where we make a couple different categories of thems and uses. And so, Last week when Pat was asking you who are your thems, perhaps those living in poverty or um, homeless or, you know, th there's a whole bunch of options that you could have put people in your them category. Um, and I just lost my place. <laughs> da, 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 da. I really did just lose my place. Okay, so, okay. So yes, here we go, I'm so sorry for that. So obviously I'm not the professional here, but uh, so there is a lot of harm that can happen when we start making those two different categories and Pat talked a lot about that last week. What we need to understand is that every human being is suffering from poverty. We're suffering from a poverty of spiritual intimacy or a poverty of being, a poverty of committing or community, a poverty of stewardship. We experience these kind of poverties because we're unable to experience the fullness of the joy that God designed for us to have in those kinds of relationships. Because of the fall, none of us have ever been able to experience what God truly intended for us. Therefore, we're all living in some sort of poverty. And we need to remember that because all poverty is rooted in brokenness. 
And who amongst us doesn't know that we all own our own brokenness? So we all are in poverty. So when we have the better understanding of poverty and we embrace that mutual brokenness with those who are being called to serve, when we do that, the results can be good and grand. But when we don't do that, we can actually do more harm than good. Because sometimes when Christians are called to do work or serve, when they don't see their own brokenness, they often create a feeling of inferiority to those that they're serving. That Christians sometimes get a bad rap because they want to be the fixers and they want to come in on their horse and be the white shining knight who saves all things and, and does a really great job and pats themselves on the back. I'm not saying that's us, but I'm saying in general, a lot of Christians, when they do their work, that's the kind of work that they're doing with their God complex but that's not who we are because we're all broken people and we all experience our own senses of pop or, uh, types of poverty. So let's jump back to Micah 6.8 because that's where I said we were going to go with this message today. And if you don't know much about the book of Micah in the Old Testament, he was a prophet who was charged with warning Israel and Judah about the coming judgment of God. And if you're a history person, unlike me, you'll want to know probably that Micah prophesied between the years of 737 and 696 BC um, when he prophesied of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, but also he prophesied about the restoration and its future. So although his message, I believe, was a lot like Isaiah's in the sense that it had some harsh judgment and a um, just, you know, some stern talking to of the Israelites. It was also a message of mercy, forgiveness, love, and compassion. So let's read Micah 6 and hear how we see both sides of that. It says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead my case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, you mountains, the Lord's accusations. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a case against his people. That's the moment where they all go, ouch, that hurts. The Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also, Adri Air, I'm sorry, also Aaron and Miriam. But then there's kind of this response that happens, or it, you think about the response the Israelites would have. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? That's kind of that smart aleck response that you never want to hear from your children when they are, when you're lecturing them. But God replies, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. In this, God basically asks, what have I done that you're treating me this way? And the Israelites, they knew they weren't perfect, but they thought they were doing okay, but they weren't getting it when, they were, when trying to understand what God really expected from them. So in verse 8, God tries to be a little more clear in his communication with his expectations of him, and that's when he simply states, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, not only was God calling his chosen people to live a life of these three principles, 
we know that he also sent his son to earth, and Jesus lived a life faithfully teaching and, and, and living out these principles, not just in words, but in deeds and actions. In fact, when Jesus commands us to love our neighbor as ourselves, we can probably assume that that includes act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. So I believe that in the history of Livingstone Church and our I Love Southside ministry, that we probably subconsciously strive to be a church that commonly uses those three actions when serving our neighbors. But I'm not sure that we've ever actually communicated it this way when we've talked about I Love Southside. But as God spoke through Micah to his people, he had to take a pause and make it very clear that this is what the Lord required of them. So in regards to Living Stones and the Isle of Southside ministry, I want to take a pause and make it very clear that we too need to go beyond our checklist of the things that we are called to do as Christians and Christ followers. Loving your neighbor will take us beyond the Sunday morning sermon and the weekend groups. We'll be tasked to give in ways beyond our offerings and our time with the Lord. We are being called to spend ourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And we will do this when we act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. So I Love Southside um, has a new logo that I'm officially unveiling today. And some of you might ask, well, why did we need a new logo? Well, the truth is, like, there wasn't a true reason why we needed a new logo, but we just felt that with some of the pivots we were making on I Love Southside Ministry and some of the um, focus more on the immediate neighborhood around Livingstone's church, that we wanted a logo that truly symbolized who we are and what we're called to do. So here's our new Livingstone Church logo. You might have seen, or I'm sorry, I Love Southside logo. You might have seen it out in the hallway or got a sneak peek of it somewhere. But I just want to share a few things with you there, because there's great purpose in this. The first thing is, is that when you see the green, the red, and the blue in there, those are the same colors that are in our Livingstone Church logo that was updated a couple years ago. We wanted to make sure that they were both connected and that it represents both Livingstone Church and I Love Southside. But you'll see that there's a several buildings or icons there that represent uh, different things. And they represent things that are in our neighborhood. So starting on your left, it's a school building. That represents Monroe. There's a church. That represents us, Living Stones, in the heart of this neighborhood. There are several smaller buildings that represent homes and apartments and, and small businesses that are in our neighborhood. And then there's a taller building. We feel that Miami Hills is a huge part of our I Love Southside ministry, and so they should be represented in this logo too. And then on the end, we have another school, which is to represent Riley High School. Because we just feel that geographically, that neighborhood surrounding Riley, the neighborhood surrounding uh, Monroe and us in Miami Hills, that is who I Love Southside is. And of course, there's a big red heart on there because, you know, to express love, you have to have a giant heart in there too. So. That is our new I Love Southside logo. If anybody asks you about it, now you've had your lesson, so you know what it represents. Uh, but when you leave today, uh, a couple of us will be out in the lobby, and we have stickers for everybody, so you can put them on your car, your tumbler, or Stephen's applauding. He likes stickers. <laughs> I do, too. So. <laughs> so we'll have those for you today. Um, 
so with that, you might be asking, okay, Angie, you've used these phrases over and over and over again, but what does it actually mean for us to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly in terms of our I Love Southside ministry? So I want to briefly hit on those three, three things um, before we wrap up. And so the first thing it says is act justly. When we think of justice, how many of you think like in terms of punishment or somebody's going to get what's coming to them? Like that's real justice? Some of us think that. <laughs> yes, okay. Um, but in scripture, justice isn't often, isn't used in this way. It's often used alongside the word righteousness. So you might be familiar with, you know, scripture that says the Lord, or the Lord loves righteousness and justice. Or righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. Because we need to understand that God's justice has nothing to do with punishment. It's all about fairness. And learning to do justly is about learning to see the world with God's sense of impartiality. And that might be hard for most of us in this room to do, to see the world with, without having those, those senses of gross feelings because we are impartial in so many ways. We're flawed. So we have to remember, we live in a broken and sinful world. There's no denying that there's inequality, unfairness, and prejudices that have made their way into our everyday lives. We're living in a world where people use their resources, their positions of power to take advantage of others or to simply overlook the suffering of others that they encounter. But God expects his people to be on the lookout for this. He demonstrates this with foreigners and widows and orphans, but he doesn't want us just to be on the lookout for this. He expects us to care for them and to take action on their behalf. There are so many areas where injustice is happening right in our neighborhood, right before we're at our eyes, and we need to be praying constantly for God to allow us to open our eyes to see the injustices of our neighbors and to help prompt us in how we act on that. But just think of our neighborhood, children living in true poverty with food insecurities, the loss of life, or the lack of value on life shown in gun violence from unjust laws that affect races disproportionately, from inadequate support and funding of our public schools, to infrastructure and development that create burdens for those in poverty. All of these are examples of injustices that happen right here on the south side of South Bend. And I wish I could stand up here and tell you all the solutions to make all these things go away, but I can't, and there's no easy answers or solutions to this. But what I do know is that God requires us to do something. God requires his people to promote justice, and that can be difficult. And so I just want to encourage you, if you have no clue how that will uh, be lived out in your life, the first thing that I did was I decided that I had to stop being ignorant of the injustices that are happening, and I had to educate myself, and not educate myself in a skewed way, but I had to start reading from authors who lived different lives from me. I had to start listening to podcasts and audiobooks of people who had different experiences than me. And those have been able to open my eyes to injustices and know and be certain that God is calling us to do more. So I would encourage you, if you need a first step, dive into a book, listen to an audiobook or a blog, um, do something to help educate yourself and be more aware of the injustices that are happening. The next part of it is that we're called to love mercy. So loving mercy means that we will walk alongside those who suffer, that we'll show faithfulness, generosity, and compassion. But it doesn't just mean showing mercy. 
It actually means that we have to love showing mercy. Mercy isn't deserved, but it's given to others as freely as it was given to us. Mercy must look beyond what somebody else deserves. And it's not just about being nice, like most of us can find a day here or there where we can be nice to others, but it's a kindness that's extended at personal cost when it's within our power to do otherwise. It means we're making a conscious decision. There's a cost involved in us to show someone else mercy. It's an ability to see the big picture instead of being focused on what we feel we deserve. So if we want to be a people um, who love mercy, we'll have to remember a few things. The first one is we have to ask ourselves the question, how much mercy do we require from God? And that's a rhetorical question, but I'm guessing most of you are saying a lot more than I ever deserved. And how much mercy do we require from other people? Because in your life, other people have shown you mercy when it was difficult for them to do that. And we need to understand mercy can do what judgment can't. That legitimate acts of mercy, those things can bring true change. And we're called to follow God's example, and we see this in Luke 6.36 when it says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Lastly, we're called to walk humbly. And walking humbly with God includes all things we think of with our relationship with God. So um, it involves being intimate with God, cultivating relationships, staying attentive to God's will, putting ourselves in secondary position to Him, um, being deliberate about ongoing spiritual growth and, and discipleship. And then although God says those are all really important things and we should be doing that, He also says that's not enough. Um, to, to walk humbly as Jesus did, we have to do more. We're told to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit because we need to cultivate a heart, a healthy heart that of self, let me start that again. <laughs> we need to cultivate a healthy self-awareness that helps us when we're doing things that promote and elevate ourselves. And quite honestly, we're in a culture that likes to promote and elevate ourselves instead of others. We must value others more highly than we value ourselves. Humility is found when we're willing to serve, when it's actually inconvenient for us, or when there's a personal cost to us that is high. We have to care about the interests of others, and let's face it, our society, it, they've har it, our society's hardwired us to put ourselves first and to care about our own needs and desires, but we're called to take a step back and truly care about the experiences and troubles of others because we're called to be an others-first people. We're an others-first church. And we must be willing to take the lowest position, because humility isn't about a posture or a frame of mind. It's an action. Humility isn't just about taking the lowest position. It's also accepting the stigma or the consequences that come along with putting yourself in that lowest position, and that can be difficult to do. So as I wrap up here today, um, I wanted to bring in an example that I felt just truly um, exemplified these three actions that we're talking about. So how many in this room have ever read or seen uh, Les Mis? Victor Hugo's Les Mis, read the book or seen the movie or musical? Okay. Well, I think it's an amazing story of transformation. And although I don't have enough time today to like go through the whole story, if you haven't watched it, like at least watch the, the 
the movie of it because it truly gives you this transformation that happens to the main character of Jean Valjean. But it's just a beautiful story, and I will tell you, if you're not into musicals, it's okay. You can still like this. Like, you don't have to tell people that you watched it if you're not into musicals, but it's great, I promise you. So anyways, uh, in Les Mis, the main character is a man named Jean Valjean. And at some point in his life, he made a decision to steal a loaf of bread. And he did this because his sister's children were starving. But that decision actually led him to serving 19 years of hard labor in prison. And eventually he was released. Um, but when he was released, he was just a hardened man. He didn't trust people. Um, there was definitely no warm, fuzzy heart that when he saw people, he just um, didn't know anything different than that life that he, he had in prison for those 19 years. But when he was released, um, he ended up being taken in by a local church. And this is where the character of the bishop enters in. So the bishop, of course, knows that God law, God's law requires love, charity, and hospitality. And so at one point, Bishop Muriel tells Valjean, and I'm going to speak it instead of singing it because you do not want to hear me sing anything, okay? So this is just the speaking version. It says, though our lives are very humble, what we have, we have to share. So he was opening the, the um, church to him. He was opening and giving food. He was just being so gracious to Valjean. But in an act of desperation, Valjean made another, took another, uh, moment to have poor judgment, and he left in the middle of the night, stealing the silverware that belonged to the church. So the next morning, he's off, and he gets um, caught, caught by the police, and they find him with possession of these silverware items, and so when questioned, Valjean actually tells the authorities that the bishop gave them to him, and the police were pretty sure that this was a complete lie, so they're going to take him back to the church and, you know, have the bishop pretty much tell the truth of what happened. So when they go back, the bishop is actually put in this really difficult position. I'm going to pause here real quickly. Uh, the pictures that are up here, I just had to do it. The, does anybody recognize the actor that's the bishop up there? That's my husband. <laughs> he was actually the bishop in the South Bend Civic Theater's production several years ago. Uh, so when I was going to use this as an illustration, and I was like, I'm just not using like a regular photo of Les Mis. I'm going to use this one. And I will tell you, he did offer to get up and sing parts of it, but I told him my message was already too long and that, you know, he couldn't overshadow. Like, he's got a really good voice, so I didn't want him to show me up. Anyways. <laughs> So Bishop Muriel, he's put in this really difficult position because, you know what, he's already been really kind to Valjean, and he's given him charity. And what did Valjean do? He repaid him by stealing the silverware. But instead of turning Jean Valjean in, the bishop grabs silver candlesticks, and he kind of forces them on Valjean. And the police, you know, don't really know what's going on. But the bishop tells them that not only did he give Valjean the church's silverware, Valjean forgot to take the candlesticks that he had given him also. And so the police, you know, are confused about what happened, but they have to leave. Like, the, nothing bad happened here, apparently. But this is a moment where the bishop has kind of that come-to-Jesus moment with Valjean. And he sings, but I will speak, Forget not, never forget, that you have promised to use the silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil, but too good. 
It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the sphere of perdition, and I give it to God. The bishop is truly acting out, or living out, act justly, love mercy, and walking humbly in his decision right there. And at this point in Valjean's life, he doesn't really understand it because he has no framework of understanding this kind of grace and mercy. But through this, Valjean directly experiences the power of godly grace and mercy, and a transformation begins. He realizes that at that moment, he cannot walk away unchanged by the bishop's display of grace. And his life then shows the evidence of genuine transformation that happens within his heart. If you know the rest of the story, Valjean goes on to adopt an orphan girl. He performs many numerous acts of charity. And later in the story, and I won't give a spoiler alert in case you still need to, to see it, but he displays the power of the same kind of grace he received when he extends it to his greatest enemy, Javert. So there's a lot more to this beautiful story, but when I think of life change that happened to Valjean after his encounter with the bishop, I think that we have that opportunity, too, to be part of life transformation in the lives of our neighbors. But before we can be part of that and come into the scene where the bishop comes in, we must first work within ourselves and our church and be sure that we model Micah 6.8. We have to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. So to finish up, I know I am long on time, uh, but I'm going to finish up quickly here. I want to bring us all back to the I Love Southside ministry. And I want you to understand that we have many ministries here at Livingstone's Church, ministries that you can be part of, you might volunteer for, your children might take part of. And those are things that we do. But I Love Southside ministry is more than something we do at Livingstone's Church. I Love Southside ministry, it's who we are. So if you call Livingstone's Church your home, if you're all in here, if this is where you continue to show up on Sundays, you are already part of I Love Southside Ministry because it's who we are. This is what God has called us to do. So the I Love Southside Ministry, it's going to need every single one of us to be a member and to bring transformation into our neighborhoods. So that means you guys too. You all are going to have a part in this. And so again, when I talk about kind of some directional change, that's one of the things is we need every single one of our Livingstoners to be in I Love Southside Ministry because it's who we are. So when you think about, well, what does that mean? How do I own part of I Love Southside Ministry? There are many different ways that you might be part of it. You might be one of the people who sign up for every single event to volunteer because you have a servant's heart. Some of you have the greatest gift of generosity that I have ever seen, and so you will give monetarily, or you will be the one out, you know, buying all the supplies and donating when we have a need for that. Some of you are so gifted in planning and leadership that you can go beyond the call, above the call of volunteering, and you want to help set the direction or set the tone or see the future and, and help be in those plannings with I Love Southside. Some of you are knowledge seekers, and you're going to dive into books and, and podcasts and all of that to learn more. And that's important to us because we have to have numbers of people learning more and seeing how we can be better in our I Love Southside ministry. We're going to need prayer warriors because there should never be a moment in our history where we are not praying for the I Love Southside ministry. We are constantly seeking God's guidance and his will to be done in our neighborhoods. Some of you will be behind-the-scenes workers. Some of you might be our matchmakers, that you are connected with people or other organizations in this community, and you think, I love Southside, and this organization or these people need to connect and, and build each other up. 
So there's just a lot of examples of how you might own part of the I Love Southside ministry. And this week, I'm challenging you to think about it. How do you fit an I Love Southside ministry? Because you do. And what I want you to do is to think about it. Think of some of the examples I gave. Perhaps there are other ways that you see you fitting into it. And what you're going to do is my email is going to come up on the screen here in a second. You're going to email me this week, and you're going to say, Angie, this, I know this is where God has put me in this ministry, and this is how I'm going to serve in it. Or you might email me and say, Angie, I'm not even sure, and I don't know that much about the ministry because I'm kind of new here, but I like it, and I want to be part of it, so, you know, tell me more. But I fully expect by the end, before next Sunday, that I should have an inbox full of emails from every single one of you in this room and those of you watching online telling me how you are going to own part of the I Love Southside ministry because it's going to take all of us. It's who we are. Church, we have so much to do. God has called us to big things in our neighborhood, and we can't do it without all of us. We all have to learn to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. And these things are going to lead to transformation of our hearts and transformations of community. And I pray that you're all in for this ride. So let's pray before we finish out today. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to be here and to speak my heart today, Lord. I just uh, pray that the words that you have given to me to speak to, to the church, that those words are absorbed and just um, that everyone can kind of wrestle with what they heard today and understand their ownership and their part of our I Love Southside ministry. Lord, I pray that the actions for Micah 6-8 are who we are and who we become in serving the South Side, Lord, that it's something we know this is without question what we will do in serving your kingdom here on the South Side. Lord, I just pray be with all of us as we go through our, you know, the future of I Love South Side. But Lord, I just, I ask that all of us own a part of this and that we will just continue to build relationships here on the South Side with our neighbors. It's in your name I pray. Amen.